More than 4,000 graduate students in over 80 different programs of study. You guys are sort of all over the world, it seems like. It's kind of mind-blowing when you think about it. Here on Inspiration Dissemination. But there's actually photographs of this data set stretching over a much longer period of time. They're now converted into basically mathematical shapes, and we can now analyze the statistics of this shape. Good evening, listeners. Good evening, listeners. Hello, everyone. You're tuned in to 88.7 KBVR Corvallis. It's time for another episode of Inspiration Dissemination. I'm Jenna Fryer. And I'm Brian Lynn. At Oregon State, we have more than 4,000 graduate students and postdoc fellows in over 80 different programs of study. And here on Inspiration Dissemination, we feature the research and personal stories of one of these students each week. If you're a graduate student or postdoc at OSU and you're interested in coming on the show, or if you just want to find out about all the awesome things going on at Oregon State, check out our blog at blogs.oregonstate.edu slash inspiration, where you can find out all about our up-and-coming guests and links to our Twitter and podcast pages. Inspiration Dissemination is recorded live, and today we are very excited to be joined by Gabriella Brill, a first-year master's student in fisheries and wildlife. Welcome, Gabriella. Hi, thank you for having me. I'm so stoked to be here. All right, well, just to uh, jump off the bat, if you could give us a, a quick kind of one sentence, what you would tell a friend at a party, what is it that you research? Oh my God, my elev- elevator spiel. I've practiced it quite a bit this week at this past conference I was at, so it's pretty so good. So you're ready. Yeah. <laughs> All right, we're in the elevator. Ding. What is it that you do? Um, I study the uh, movement and behavior of the population of white sturgeon in the John Day um, Reservoir in the Columbia River using um, telemetry data. Awesome. And so when we think about like a movement of a fish, why? what specifically about um, how or where they move is interesting to study? Um, great question. Uh, Movement is really important when we're talking about fish because not all fish stay in the same place at one time. So they can move for a number of reasons. Food, um, reproductive opportunities, um, habitat type. Um, so especially in a reservoir system, understanding you know what habitat these fish are occupying at different times of the year um, is really important as that's a... Um, that species is a fishery. So that means that um, not all fish are used for food, but similar to the way salmon are managed as a fishery, so are sturgeon. So trying to understand what areas they're occupying at different times of years is really important um, for conservation and management. Okay, and when we think about like the conservation management of a fishery fish, is, it, is the goal just to be able to eat it forever? Oh, man. I think <laughs> that's a good question. Um, yes, because right, we want like opportunities for all generations, right? That's a resource that we're kind of like in 
charge of managing and making sure that it's here for um, quite a while. But I think like also recognizing the ecological importance of species is really important. And not all fish that are in a fishery, um, not all fish that aren't in a fishery are necessarily like lesser. Um, they all have ecological importance. Um, but definitely with sturgeon, um, there's a lot of uh, desire to have that resource around um, for future generations, um, not just for fishermen, but also commercially and for like uh, First Nations individuals as well. So since you talked about that they there's a specific environment that they want, so what is like the sturgeon's ideal environment or does it kind of change? Um, yeah, so sturgeon are... Um, Historically amphidromous, which is a big word I recognize, but essentially it just means that they can move from saltwater to freshwater freely. Um, however, with our uh, operation of dams in both the Columbia River and other large river systems, um, that kind of makes the populations isolated. There's no um, efficient way that they can move through these dam systems. Um, so previously, before the dams were constructed they could move in and out of the river system for food and reproduction and move um, up along the pacific coast that's their uh, native region um, but with the dams they're really constricted to that area between dams so like my study areas between the john day dam and the mcnary dam we consider that population isolated um, so there's quite a bit of um, res like restriction in their historical range and historical behavior. Um, does that answer your question? I kind of got sidetracked. <laughs> yeah, so so they used to be able to move um, wherever they wanted, and now there's some roadblocks in the way. Um, and so even though they can't maybe make it out to the ocean, mm. Why is that necessarily a bad thing if they also like the river system? Yeah, so um, they used the river systems mainly um, for like reproductive areas. Um, not all white sturgeon historically would make those movements between freshwater and saltwater. Um, there are uh, there's a population way at the top specifically in our Columbia River, um, in the Kootenai Pool up in Canada. And um, they have actually a different genetic makeup than the ones that we see in the lower Columbia region with the area in between kind of being a mix. So there's not always those huge migrations, because that's a lot of distance to cover from the mouth of the Columbia River all the way up to um, Canada. Um, but a lot of it was for uh, reproductive areas, because they like really fast um, water usually found um, at falls. So like historically, we had a falls at Cascade Locks and the Salilo Falls that are now flooded from the reservoir system. So they would, they would come in looking for that turbid water, that fast water, um, usually opposite from salmon who like want like nice, clean, fresh water. They're like, give me the, uh, the water that's murky. Um, so these areas were what they would seek out and without, with the loss of those natural areas, um, they use the dams, uh, the tail race area where like the uh, water is spilled from mimics the natural area as best as it can. So those are the areas they congregate in for reproduction. Um, they also come in for food as well. Um, 
it's a good place to forage in estuaries and whatnot. So since like the dams don't perfectly mimic a waterfall, but yeah. kind of do, does it impact their reproduction or has it stayed stagnant? It doesn't impact yeah. it as much or... Um, so we are looking at recruitment. So that's like the uh, the process of an egg um, making its way to what we call a young of year. So like a year old um, is kind of the loose term. Sturgeon grow pretty fast. Um, so we can see a young of year that was laid that spring and fall. So we look we measure recruitment based on those young of year we see. Um, to answer your question, um, it's really important to remember that we each population below the lowest dam on the Columbia River and up is managed under different, um, let's say, catch rates. So different number of individuals can be caught um, in each pool. Um, recruitment um, has been significantly declining um, in the John Day Reservoir where I'm at, where only one young of year has been found in the past 12 years. Um, typically, they run on these spawning cycles from every two to five years because um, they will wait to reproduce if conditions aren't right. Um, however, they can last up to 10 years. Um, but 12 years is a significant gap. Um, and it's asking the question... What could be causing these big gaps? Not all recruitment in the reservoirs is as significantly declined as the one we're working in in the John Day Reservoir, but um, there are an increasing uh, trends of uh, recruitment loss in our river systems. Not and that's not not just uh, specific to the Columbia River either. So, so why might a fish choose to not reproduce if it can wait several years? Um, I'm, I don't know. If, I'm guessing it's not quite like a millennial waiting for the housing market to get better. <laughs> what's what's it waiting for? <laughs> I love it. I loved um, your Goldilocks term, too. That, that was great. Um, what are they looking for? Um, those conditions I kind of listed earlier, turbid, fast water, like nice gravel substrate, um, which is like different than like sand, which is not ideal. And like huge boulders are like not ideal for them either. Look, look for like nice cobble. So that way the eggs can drift down in that fast water and then attach to like nice small stones and grow that way. Um, if they don't find ideal conditions, then the females will actually reabsorb their eggs. And um, you can imagine like these big females with sturgeon can grow up to an over 10 feet, which is crazy, crazy big. So like these big, like nine foot, really mature females can produce millions of eggs. So imagine like how energy taxing that is. And if you don't like lay your eggs, then you want to get those nutrients back to survive the winter. So they will reabsorb those eggs and then wait for the following year to see if those conditions are better, more ideal. Okay, yeah. So to circle back to the Goldilocks reference, these fish are <laughs> Goldilocksing their way through the riverbeds, um, waiting for a bed that's just right. None of them are quite right, not right enough for uh, all the energy that a child worth 
millions of children <laughs> require. And I have one nephew, so I can't imagine any any more than that. But um, and and so we have this huge gap of many many years, very few offspring, and that's a problem for all the people that want to collect those fish. Mm-hmm. Um, fishermen and and tribal nations can. Is there then some tension between those groups and trying to get as much fish out of that dam or how does, how does that play into it? Yeah. So, um, of course, when it comes to natural resource management, there is tension, um, especially when the resource is so limited. Um, there is, there is a lot of, uh, I want to say like co-management between, um, different agencies, um, including tribal agencies. So there is definitely um, conversations, and those catch rates are set together. Um, so the the recreational fishery limits are set separate from the ones set for uh, the tribal agencies as well. Um, there are tensions. Uh, and I think the, like, the most important thing is to recognize that this is a shared resource, um, but also that maintaining it for future generations is not only important to um, like ODFW or WDFW, it's also important for uh, tribal nations as well. And you know, as we know, historically, they haven't always been offered a seat at the table, um, even though they were the first ones here before colonizers came in and crashed the fishery. So does that answer your question? I have a tendency to digress. (laughs) I apologize. There are tensions. And as always, like um, I think what I believe in is a a, a proactive collective science that engages all. It's not always the case. So since these fish are like so large, do Mm -hmm. people, I guess I've just never seen sturgeon on a menu somewhere. So are they collected for their meat or is it solely like their eggs for caviar? Yeah, that's a, that's a good, I don't think I've ever seen sturgeon on the menu either. <laughs> um, uh, yeah, they are consumed. Um, there are a lot of like hatcheries that like sell sturgeon caviar specifically um, because the catch uh, limitations exist. Um, if you like go up through the Columbia, the what is that? The historic highway, like across the, or up the Columbia River. There's definitely like restaurants that sell sturgeon. Um, I've never had it, but I've heard it's good. <laughs> um, but it's definitely also used in ceremonies and um, in sustenance for uh, the First Nations as well. So definitely, definitely still consumed. Yeah. Yeah. Maybe if there was more of them, they would appear on more menus. Yeah. I mean, it takes them a while to mature. So uh, to get that big, like a, a nine foot, 10 foot one, it's got to be like 80 to 90 years old. That's right. 80, so. 90 years. These these guys have a lifespan similar to humans, maybe a little longer. Um, and they also take about till their mid 20s to fully mature, mm-hmm. um, maybe a little bit faster than some people. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I mean, the males mature from a uh, don't take as long from 10 to 15 and females is 15 to 25. So. Excellent. Okay. And so then we're trying to figure out, um, 
why why aren't the sturgeon having kids? And yeah. how exactly do you do that? Like, what is it? How I mean, you certainly can't ask the fish. Um, so <laughs> I how, wish. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> send it a survey. Oh my gosh, um, if I could like Doctor Doolittle a sturgeon, that would be so cool. A dream come true. Yeah, thesis would be written real quick, <laughs> <laughs> probably. <laughs> Um, so yeah, so what is like a day in day in your life, or I guess um, an overview of, of how you study these creatures? How does that look? Yeah, so um, like I mentioned, we use telemetry data. So I think it's also before I continue, I think it's important to recognize that like recruitment and lack of recruitment specifically, like isn't just a single issue. So like talking about um, how I'm just studying like just like one little side of what's potentially going on. Um, there's still so much that could be done and um, other different parts of the issue that could be addressed. Um, so yeah, so telemetry data, it's really cool. We, um, there's 61 individuals within that uh, uh, population um, that have little acoustic transmitters. Um, so we have receivers throughout the reservoir and we essentially track their movements downstream, um, upstream, looking to see, um, if they are, uh, if they are occupying the space that we know to be their spawning ground, um, and what could potentially be going on as they move up and downstream. Could they be looking for food? Could they be like, participating in refuge seeking behavior is the temperature too warm for them in the reservoir um and then essentially my goal is to set up this uh fine scale array so it's like made out of um 15 to 19 of these acoustic receivers so they'll pick up um these pings essentially in real time to determine if they're occupying the spawning grounds specifically so they'll be throughout the tail race and hopefully is anticipating that we'll be able to see um if they are engaging in that spawning behavior so the goals we're trying to address um is if they are engaging in spawning behavior how much time are they spending in the spawning ground are there differences between males and females um, are there differences between time of day and the amount of um, spills, like the velocity coming from the dam? Um, is that impacting um, the areas they're occupying? And hopefully, if that yields some results, um, that could potentially lead the way on the on any follow-up research to see, okay, if they are occupying those areas, then we know for sure um, that they will be there during this time of year. Are they laying eggs? Um, because that's the other pro part. You know, we know that they're reproductively mature and there's like a huge population of um, those individuals, but are they laying eggs? We don't know. We can only assume they are. Um, so that would be like the next further steps if this uh, tense array works. <laughs> that's the goal. Does that answer your question? Yeah, okay. yeah, for sure. So we have a lot of, a lot of variables there. Yeah. Um, and then you get to try to weave a red string between them all and oh, yeah. and determine come <laughs> i'm imagining the you know the detective at a board with the connecting all the dots kind of a red string is that is oh that kind gosh. of what you're doing with all these different parameters and variables and and things that they might like or might not like or be doing or maybe aren't doing 
Can I put that as my like new title, Sturgeon Detective? Yeah. I like that. (laughs) (laughs) That's a good way to look at it. Yeah. So essentially, like, hopefully the main goal is it like a 3D model so we can like track the fish per day. Um, So that's actually a really good way to look at it, like connecting the lines between these different receivers um, because the different areas of the tail race could mean different things. Um, Yeah, so imagine that plus uh, and then replicate that by 61 individuals. Just have like a whole room full of, uh, what are they called, cork boards. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) I love it. So many push pins. So are there other like external, I guess, to the water factors you look at? Like, obviously, wildfires have been a very mm. key discussion, Just and then climate change as a whole. So are there yeah. external to the environment factors? Yeah, um, definitely climate change, I think, is on a lot of scientists' minds because that's just um, the environments we're working on. Is, uh, the future is going to hold a lot of changing climates. Um, so that is definitely a concern. That's part of the push is if, um, like our Columbia river is impacted a lot by snow melt. And if we don't get as much snow in the winters, what will that look like if these fish need really turbid water, but there's not enough water to push through these dams. Um, so there are a lot of environmental factors because they work in free-flowing rivers, so these big river systems, things like wildfires probably wouldn't have um, a huge impact on them, Um, but it can accumulate, right? Mm -hmm. Um, Any, like, any of, like, tributaries losing water could impact the bigger system as a whole. Um, But they're pretty resilient, right? So they've been around for, like, 200 million years. That's crazy. They're, like, living dinosaurs, so, um, and their genetic makeup is insane. They, they're pretty resilient fish. Um, but when you introduce something unnatural, right, um, that they aren't adapted to, they're also not quick to adapt because their generations are so long. Um, but definitely climate change is of interest. Um, as we know, water, water is life, right? So if water decreases, um, that's going to have a huge impact, not just on sturgeon, but the fish communities as a whole. Um, yeah. 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 Uh, climate change is always a, a pleasant, pleasant <laughs> thought exercise <laughs> for, for uh, an evening. Um, but it's fascinating that, you think that they can like be like, mm, it's not right right now. We're going to just, <laughs> we're going to hold off and hope, hope for better for our future. Yeah. Little do they know <laughs> <laughs> what the future holds. Yeah. I mean, so if you think about it too, like, let's say like we do find a way we like figure out what the issues resulting in recruitment is like, we still have 12 years of no individuals and that like could create these generation gaps. Like, a possibility could be like a longer spawning event cycle. So like, let's say you have 10 years. Let's just throw it out, throw that out there. That is no way it has any scientific background. Well, let's just say their new spawning cycle in this changed environment is 10 years. That's going to create these huge generation gaps. What does that do for fisheries that have size limits on the sturgeon they can take? Um, that could potentially leave time in between where they could fish 
And what could that do to the communities they feed on or others feed on them when they die, right? So there's a lot of, um, even if we figure out a way to, quote unquote, I keep hitting this, solve the problem, um, you're still going to end up with these potential generation gaps. And they're not as quick to rebound as other fish. Yeah, so it's like the opposite of baby boomers. Instead of every few years <laughs> having a spike, it's just this like a gap that'll like pay for it every, every so many generations. There'll always be less yeah. um, where that gap was. Are there plans right now to like adapt any fisheries like regulations for catching? Oh, man. I don't know. We definitely like um, as like Washington agency, Oregon agency, um, and the tribal agencies all get together and have yearly meetings where we set catch limits and things like that. So it definitely is talked about um, there. It, it is in conversation. I'm definitely like not high enough up on the totem pole to know exactly. Um, but I'm working my way up there. <laughs> I'll get <laughs> as there. As soon as you get this degree. <laughs> Hopefully. Um, <laughs> but it is definitely on people's minds. Yeah. And so of all the fish in the sea there's plenty of them i hear <laughs> and of all the like of all the things affected by climate change one could study why sturgeon oh man um well i definitely didn't start out this way um i studied like salmon in undergrad and typical after you know i had like a little break you do a little soul searching after i feel like you graduate undergrad not everybody but i did i needed it I was just a, like a little baby. Um, so I did some other things and I just didn't think I could make it in fisheries. Like, honestly, it's not like it's, it can be a tight knit group and like getting your foot in the door can be hard, which I don't like. I do have our problem with. Um, and then uh, I just had somebody take I decided to go for it. And somebody with an ODFW gave me a chance. Um, and uh, I studied salmon for a few years and decided to go back and get my degree because I really wanted to, as a very young, I feel like scientist and I always want to make a difference. But I think working within an agency like kind of helped me see the uh, management side of things. Um, so I felt ready. And uh, I was looking to go to the East Coast to study sturgeon because um, there's a lot of opportunities out there to study sturgeon. They have three different uh, species instead of our one out here. Um, and uh, I happened to talk with a uh, past boss that um, ended up switching jobs from when I worked with him. And he was studying sturgeon. And he was like, hey, why don't you come work on sturgeon before you decide to dedicate two years of your life to studying them in a place you've never been? And I was like, sure, okay, that sounds great. Um, and then I just fell in love with them which I feel like almost every scientist says about their chosen species, right? They like yeah. have like a, they have a moment, I don't know. <laughs> um, they're funky and they're so charismatic and uh, I, I love their life history. Um, I think it's a challenge and I have been told that I typically bite off more than I can chew, so I decided to go for it. <laughs> Um, <laughs> that's a roundabout way to explain that, but I mean, yeah, yeah. So they offer a lot of maybe unique challenges that some other fish don't have. Um, just to flesh that out a little bit for any listeners, 
that having a longer lifespan is tricky for any study organism. So that's why things like mice are are used a lot. Uh, they grow quick. These fish that live longer than us are are harder to to follow for multiple generations. Um, excellent. Yeah, I I personally don't like my or don't care about my study <laughs> organism, which is bacteria. Uh, <laughs> Mine is humans, and I have yet to fall in love with them. So I'm glad that you have found yours. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> leave it. Leave it to a fish person to say that the fish are highly charismatic, or maybe we just need to study fish. I don't know. <laughs> fish people care about their fish, man. <laughs> they, they love fish, uh, which is good. It's good to to love the things that you study. I hear. <laughs> don't get me wrong, though. Like sometimes we're out there, and you get like. A rowdy one, and especially the big ones that get rowdy, and you're just like, cool, this is my job. Or like when it's pouring rain and your gloves freeze. Mm. It's a really fun time. Um, yeah, because really so you spend a lot of time like, on, the, on a boat, yeah. I imagine. <laughs> um, that sounds awful. <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's not all sunny skies, I'll tell you that. Um, <laughs> In Oregon, who would have guessed? <laughs> so there is a picture of you on the blog, like holding a fish. Are they yes. easy to hold? Because in my fishing experience, holding a fish is not a fun time. So are they? Are they a more cuddly fish? <laughs> I guess. Well, I love- they're not cuddlefish. They're <laughs> <laughs> <Or> sturgeon. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, I mean, that depends on the size, right? Like, I think the biggest one I've seen is like. Mm, closer to like nine and a half feet. And that one was definitely not easy to hold. Um, it, you know, it takes quite a bit of lack of a better term, like some wrangling when they get that big, we literally have to like put a lasso around them, <laughs> which is a uh, fun. Um, but when they're smaller, they're definitely a little bit easy to hold. They like have this torpedo shaped body. So you can almost like hold their body and then their fin where they have it's called a caudal peduncle which is just the wait it's called a what a caudal peduncle a caudal peduncle a caudal peduncle that sounds like you just made it up (laughs) I almost don't want to say it because you laugh every time it's a funny combination of words but it's like where the (laughs) it's where the body meets the tail fin so their fin i'm making motions and nobody can see me right now but i'm still gonna do it it's kind of like shaped like a v they have longer caudal fins so you can just hold them on that caudal peduncle and they (laughs) yeah (laughs) (laughs) They, they stay still pretty well but um they also have rows of scoots which are like these really sharp Essentially, scoots? yeah, scoots. I know it sounds like everything I'm saying right now is made up. Yeah, <laughs> it's not. Um, the scoots are like really sharp, um, so they definitely leave scratches. And so they have like, I'm, I'm once again, I'm talking with my hands, so I apologize. But scoots on the side and the bottom and the top, and then in between them, they have this same kind of sandpaper skin as sharks do. So they're definitely not like smooth and nice all the time. I've definitely gotten scoots in my arm before and uh, it's not very fun. <laughs> but uh, I would consider them easier to hold than like a salmon. All right. If that helped. Um, That's my long roundabout way of answering your question. <laughs> yeah, I learned so much vocabulary that I am better off. I'm happier knowing. 
Um, Good. I'm happy to help. <laughs> transitioning into some of our traditions, I don't know how the answer to this isn't was cuddle peduncles. A cuddle peduncle. A cuddle peduncle. <laughs> but uh, what is your favorite part of your research? <laughs> um, oh, my favorite part of my research. Um. Uh, I love the field work, of course. Um, and the fish are really interesting and they, I feel like don't get as much attention as some of our other fish in this area do. Um, and so I'm always happy to talk about them because, um, a lot of people, A, don't know they exist and B, um, don't know all their like fun nuances, their quirks, and I just love to drop sturgeon knowledge. Um, I also really like the opportunities they pose for um, conservation efforts, and I honestly kind of like the lab and office work a little bit. Um, I like the idea of being able to study a species that, you know, you have a field work component where you can be out in the field, rain or shine, windy, not windy, um, and then take that information back and run these models with habitat information and kind of get a, a whole picture. Um, there's not a lot of species that you can do that with. Um, yeah, plus I, I love the fish, so I think that helps too. But, you know, Very charismatic. There. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> rowdy for sure. Well, I guess getting on to our second tradition... So yeah. if you have any advice to give, whether it be to a fellow grad student, your younger self, anyone at all, what advice would you give? Ooh, I definitely had people in my life that like didn't believe that I, like I said, would couldn't make it in fisheries. And like one of those was somebody that I really looked up to. Um, so like that was hard. Um, and like then learning um, why that was kind of happening. Um, but then like also not like trusting in myself. Like, I think I knew that I could do it, but like needed like that validation from others. And you don't like, if you, it's something you want to do and you want to study it, like you keep trying and you'll find a way. Uh, I don't love that the fisheries is like kind of close knit and there's not a lot of right money makes the world go around. So there's not a lot of money for it. Or like if it is, it's it's pretty like highly guarded. Um, but like keep trying. I mean, if there's something that you really care about, if and there's somebody's telling you you can't do it, maybe you don't need that person in your life. So I definitely, I think that's applicable to other people and applicable to my, my past self. Um, yeah, and if uh, take risks, if you can recognize there's privilege and risks, but if you can, and it seems worth it, go for it. Move across the country if you have the ability to, if that opens an opportunity for you. Um, yeah, also you don't have to. You can wait around and um, keep asking people you know or local people, volunteer. Um, or if you know that one job is going to lead you to your dream job, you know, and it's still in kind of an area you want, like go for it. I think that's yeah, I think a lot of younger people could probably resonate or could stand to listen to the advice of following your ambitions over what other people are saying. Mm -hmm. 
one person's opinion does not mean much. And that there is no right answer. Like it's whatever, whatever that moment takes you to. Yeah, there's definitely no right answer. And if there is one, like I love the idea that science is constantly changing. And if there's a study that was done 25 years ago and it's interesting to you and you want to look at it again because the climate or the habitat has changed, go for it, right? Like science isn't stagnant and that's the joy in it. Yeah, okay. And and on that note... Um what song did you bring for us? Okay, <laughs> so it's one of my favorite ones. Um, it was a, but I'm gonna butcher it because I always do. I think it's the, uh, what is it? So North the, American, North American. Uh, Sturgeon and Paddlefish Society. It's like nests. Nests. <laughs> um, they did this parody cover of Madonna's "Like a Virgin." And they did it to like a sturgeon. And it is probably like one of the only sturgeon songs you will ever find out there. Um, but it's really funny. And I figured that would fit. <laughs> you don't get a lot of sturgeon and fish songs in general. So, yeah. So, more sturgeon songs. Um, and thank you uh, so much for joining us, Gabriella. We, we've learned a lot about. Sturgeon about the, can you tell me again? Coddle, <laughs> the coddle peduncles. The coddle peduncles <laughs> uh, and, and all that entails. Thank you so much for being here. And here yeah. is Like a Sturgeon by Nasps. Swimming through the wilderness. Yeah, I'm swimming. for listening. If you want to support the show, tell your friends about it and give us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts and follow us on Twitter and Facebook at KBVRID. This theme music was performed by the OSU Drumline and the intro jingle was created by Olin Haman. Special thanks to the supporting staff at KBVR that allow the show and podcast to be possible. This show was started by Jean Kamvar and Joey Hulbert in 2012. To learn about our current hosts, other graduate students at Oregon State, or if you want to be part of the show, visit our website at blogs.oregonstate.edu inspiration. Thanks again for listening and stay curious, my friends.